Okay, we changed directions and talked quite a bit about uh, the work that God has done here in the end time, starting with Herbert Armstrong in 1926 and 1927, uh, exactly 1900 years after Christ proclaimed the acceptable year of the Lord in 27 A.D. And we know, as Peter said, God is not slack concerning his promise, and that he has given us 6,000 years before Christ's return, and that promise is secure. Uh, It will be that amount of time. He did mention possibly cutting the last, I think, year short because of the seven last plagues, and that no flesh would be saved alive uh, if those plagues continued for a full year. Uh, But that's the context of cutting it short, is at the end. So he might cut it a few months short, but still in all, it will have been 6,000 years. Uh, Maybe days short, or a week, or a month, I don't know. Uh, He just said he might cut it short so there'd be some people left. (laughs) And apparently 900 million, if that reference in Daniel is correct, that he'll sit down to judge that many people when he returns. During the millennium, they'll have their opportunity and that judgment. So God allotted 4,000 years until Christ came and set the example, and then he has allowed 2,000 years since then. And how do we know for sure that the division is 4,000 and 2,000? Well, I think it should become very obvious. We're at the 2,000 mark almost since he was here. And end-time events are swirling around us more and more every day. So we know that these prophecies are almost complete. And not only are we just looking to those prophecies or wondering when they'll be, we're watching them happen day by day. Because it is upon us, and it's getting worse day by day. I read something, I think, just yesterday about... 65% now, I don't know where they got the figure, a poll or what, but uh, they're saying that 65% of businesses have now uh, accepted the idea that they will have to have, or you will have to have, uh, a vaccine permit or passport in order to work. Uh, That's 65% already. And the number is growing day by day as this thing just gets a stranglehold more and more on us. So the mark of the beast is being implemented. It isn't fully here, but it's not something down in the future. It's here and being implemented. Uh, Starting with a mask and then going to the marks, and they're already talking about putting it in your hand and in your head so that your passport, vaccine passport is there. And Europe will allow no one to travel there this year without a vaccine passport. It's already been established and set up. That's just the way it is. You can't go without it. So it's coming fast. I have no doubt in my mind whatsoever that the 2,000 years is almost complete. Now, I started out yesterday by showing that I may have been looking at Joel 2, uh, not fully in what is there. I've been anticipating for a long time that 
great things could happen in the first month of the year. Because he does say here in Joel 2, and the context is everybody turning to God, sanctifying a fast, uh, looking for God very uh, strongly, let's say. And that the Assyrian army will be coming and all kinds of problems would arise just before this nation is taken into captivity. And in that context, I'm going to read this again in Joel 2, verse 23. He says, Be glad then, you children of Zion, those that he's calling to Zion. In the last word of this chapter, he refers again to the remnant. He's calling a remnant to Zion to finish his work. So that's whom he is addressing here. And rejoice in the eternal your God, for he has given you the former rain moderately, or according to righteousness, and the Hebrew is a little better translation apparently. Uh, but as said yesterday, this is past tense. He has given you, as we read this, the former rain moderately. And he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. So decidedly it's talking about the first month. I kept looking for all this stuff to happen, and some of it in physical ways as well as the spiritual, but wondering since this first came out in 1996, remember Herbert Armstrong's work lasted about 70 years, from 26 to 96. He had 70 years, just like the early New Testament church had 70 years. And by the time the Apostle John wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John in the book of Revelation, the church had essentially disappeared. He was making a last plea in 1st John that we just went through uh, against those who would be antichrist and seeking to destroy and would not accept Christ. So there was a great falling away that had occurred, and shortly after his death, you heard nothing more about the early New Testament church. You might find a few Sabbath keepers or feast keepers through the Middle Ages if you really search for them. But the church essentially disappeared for almost 1,900 years. Now, he raised it up again exactly uh, 1,900 years after Christ made that proclamation of the acceptable year, the Jubilee, in Luke 4, and Herbert Armstrong was trained and then began a work which resulted in many people being called to the truth, and then because of moderate righteousness or unrighteousness, the church was spewed out and blown apart, as we well know. And that's not prophecy anymore, that's history. You and I live through it. We saw it happen, we felt it, we were confused and frustrated by it. But that's fulfilled prophecy as far as the church is concerned. <clears throat> and I think, taking another look at Joel 2, we are looking here at some more actually fulfilled prophecy. Now, when Herbert Armstrong's work basically ended and uh, Worldwide Church of God disappeared, uh, God began 
to open up an incredible amount of information. And it was in January of 1996. Now, I don't like to refer to myself, and I'm not claiming any offices. We'll see what God does with what he has or whatever. But I have no doubt in my mind that the dream <clears throat> that came to me in middle, the middle of January 1996 came from him. It was very clear, technicolor, not like any dream I'd ever had. And it showed the meaning of the book of Haggai and the first four chapters, especially of Zechariah, about the two witnesses at the end and about what they would do and how they would go about it, just as it's laid out there, and that the temple would have to be built. And as I spent some time yesterday, it will be a physical temple, not just spiritual. It will be both. Because it says there in Haggai, <clears throat> very clearly, people will say it's not time to build a temple. And there's not a member of the church anywhere ever who said it's not time to build a spiritual temple. A physical, yeah, they'll say no. They'll say, well, the Jews, Jews are taking care of that. No, they're not. God, Christ disfellowshipped the Jews uh, before he left this earth. said they had to accept the apostles and those who were ordained by them, or he would have nothing more to do with them until that happened. So he's not inspiring the Jews. He's not leading the Jews. He's not involved with Judaism or the Jewish church. He's consigned it to Satan. He said, you are of your father, the devil. In that many words, he is not involved with the Jews at all, and they're not going to build his temple. Only the church of God can do that, because they are the ones he's working with. And he's going to call a remnant of them together very soon now <clears throat> to get that done. Now, Peter being correct in that we only have 6,000 years, we've gone through more than 1,970, and let's see, we only lack about six years coming up against 2026 and 27. That will be 2,000 years since Christ made that proclamation, and 2,000 years since he began working with Herbert Armstrong on a Jubilee year. Well, he started educating him in the 49th year of the cycle, which is a sabbatical year. And then uh, with that prep work, he began really getting into the work in 1927, the Jubilee year. Uh, we've had one since then, and we have one more to go to come to 6,000 years. Now remember uh, what was said about Noah, that it will be as in the days of Noah, uh, speaking from the context, certainly about the violence that would be on the earth and the things we see around us today, where everything was anti-God, and we we're pretty much in that kind of world as we sit here today. So it is as the days of Noah in that sense. But also, God gave Noah 100 years to do the work that he had to do. Some com commentators say 120, but I've gone through that pretty carefully, and I don't see but 100 years there. I don't see 120. I'm not sure where they get that. But if you put that together as written in Genesis, it's 100 years. 
Now, maybe I'm looking at it wrong. If you can see 120 there, then let me know. But I think it's 100. So, as it was in terms of the violence and so on, it's also the same in the time frame that he is allowing for the end-time work, just as in the days of Noah. And there's no room to give on that. From Christ's proclamation until 2027 is 2,000 years, and God is not slack. He didn't forget when he did all this. He is very specific. He is right on time. He never fails. And what he has said is going to happen the way he said it would happen. Now, if that be the case, and I think it is, Herbert Armstrong's work ended about 1996. The church was pretty well apart by then. And he began giving this information that you have learned about the middle of January 1996. Now, at that point, Herbert Armstrong had been 70 years, and that only left 30 years. Since then, we've burned up 25 years. And that means we have until 2026 uh, for Christ probably to return, go up to his father's throne, marry his bride, and spend a year there cheering her up, as Deuteronomy 24 indicates a bride, uh, bridegroom should do, getting her lined out for her job and ruling the earth a thousand years, and then he will come back and pronounce the jubilee at atonement of 2027, and the millennium will begin. Now, that's all information that we've learned since January 96. Uh, let's go into some of that. Now, one thing we've learned that just comes to mind, somebody else brought this to me. I didn't come up with it. But Herbert Armstrong had always talked about the different eras and which was which, and the one before Sardis, uh, oh, I can't even think of it now at the moment, Revelation 3, um, or 2, this would be Thyatira. Uh, I think that was probably the Seventh-day Church of God. But he always looked upon Worldwide Church of God as Philadelphia. And nearly everybody who was called during his time I uh, thought they were Philadelphians, and since Worldwide broke up, nearly everybody has called themselves Philadelphians. And the general view of most is that they are the Philadelphians and everybody else are the Laodiceans. Now, God told everyone to repent, and if you will not admit your problem and you think it's somebody else's problem, you're not going to repent. And if everybody has that view, nobody's going to repent. <laughs> because they think they're okay. We're, after all, we're Philadelphians. We're not Laodiceans. Well, were you spewed? We all were. Now, somebody came to me a few years ago and said, Worldwide Church of God was Sardis. They weren't. Philadelphia, and it immediately struck a chord. What does it say about Sardis? These things says he that has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, 
that you have a name that you live. Worldwide Church of God. Uh, and you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that, they are, that are ready to die. Now, what did those who took over Worldwide Church of God do? They immediately took it back into Protestantism, and only a few things remained from the things God had revealed to Herbert Armstrong. And he says, take care of that. Don't let it go away. Keep it. The things which remain that are ready to die. They tried to get rid of all the teaching. They allowed to keep the Feast of Tabernacles because it was popular and a few things like that. But for the most part, no, we're changing it all. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Well, in fact, it was such a taste in his mouth toward the end of Worldwide that he simply spewed it out, and then it did what? It died. It doesn't exist anymore. There are some people who are out-and-out Protestants who have changed the name and changed the doctrines, and they no longer even hardly resemble what church, the worldwide church of God was. It's utterly gone. It's dead. Now, I couldn't have known that 20 years ago or 40 years ago. You couldn't either because it hadn't fallen apart and died yet. <laughs> but now it has. So that is fulfilled prophecy. So then who is Philadelphia? All these people that claim they are? No. Not a chance. They're Laodiceans, just like you and I have been Laodiceans. I got spewed. You got spewed. We all got spewed. So let's admit it and repent. Let's turn back to God with zeal, with energy, with our whole hearts. That's all he's after. So if you were part of that which got pieces of spittle, and we all were, some little larger chunks, some smaller chunks, but we all got spewed. So if I got spewed, then I better say, he meant me. I had better repent. Not claim I'm okay, but you're bad. That doesn't do anybody any good. So then, if Worldwide died and Laodicea was spewed, where in the mix is Philadelphia? That's what everybody wanted to be, because God didn't say much bad about Philadelphia. He did not say they were perfect, though. People think they're A-OK if they're Philadelphians. Let's read it. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write. Now, this is the sixth era. It's between Sardis and uh, Laodicea. And what we're going to see is it has elements of both. It is formed from Sardis and Laodicea. It's in between, and it draws from both. He did say here about uh, worldwide, or, or about Sardis before we went on, uh, I've not found your works perfect. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard and hold fast and repent. What did we learn from Herbert Armstrong? Sabbath, holy days, our purpose on earth, and on and on we could go 
British Israelism, various things we learned. And he says, hang on to those and repent. Well, isn't that the position we've been in? Hang on to what we've been taught. Don't let the Tkachas or anybody else jerk it away from you. And repent. If, therefore, you shall not watch, I will come on you as a thief, and you shall not know what hour I will come upon you. Now, notice this. You have a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So he says, that movement, that work, that church died, but there are still a few from it who will be clean and cleansed and repent and hang on to what they knew. And he that overcomes will be clothed in white, and his name will be in the book of life, and I will confess his name before the Father. So, it's possible to still be a part of Sardis, coming out of Sardis and repenting, and still be accepted by God. But it takes some work. It takes some doing. And the Laodiceans, he says, I'm spewing you out. And your only chance is to repent, even in the tribulation, if it comes to that. And he says that he loves them, so he chastens them. Now let's look at Philadelphia in the light of what happened to Sardis and what has happened to us as Laodiceans. A repentant Laodicean transitions into a Philadelphian. He doesn't say anything about Laodicea being protected in a place of safety but going into the tribulation doesn't say anything about Sardis going into a place of safety except for a few names that are worthy. But most have gone back into the world. Sow to their vomit, dog to his barf. The angel of the church in Philadelphia, these things says he that is holy, he that is true, he that has the key of David. Now there is one of the bigger chunks of vomit who say they have the key of David. What does this say? Does it say a man here has the key of David? No. These things says he that is holy, he that is true, he that has the key of David. That's Christ. That's not a man. Holy? I don't think any of us could call ourselves holy. We might be edging up toward righteousness, but I don't think we can say we're holy and that we're true completely true, this is talking of Christ who has the key of David. He that opens and no man shuts. So this is a spirit being that does the opening and no man shuts who has the key of David. The key to Israel. To spiritual Israel. And David will be the king of all Israel. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, and no man can shut it. Does that sound like Herbert Armstrong? He had somewhat of an open door, and he talked about it a lot, to go into other nations and so on. But it got shut. It slammed shut. And he even says there that Hezekiah's sons in chapter 37 of Isaiah 
would be eunuchs in Babylon. They couldn't do anything, powerless, couldn't generate. So he uses eunuchs. They couldn't generate power, couldn't generate a work, just as they couldn't symbolically generate children. They'd be helpless, hopeless. And all those who came out from worldwide who started to try to recreate it don't have an open door. They're struggling with magazines and broadcasts to try to do something, but it's all fallen flat. It isn't spreading around the world like worldwide did. It's just sitting there basically doing nothing and depending on old members to take care of them. That's all it is. Nothing new coming in. A few come in the front door and a few go out the back door and they stay about the same or get smaller. That's what's going on with all of them. But before Philadelphia, he opens a door that no man can shut. Now that's the remnant church that he's drawing out of Sardis and out of Laodicea who will have the two witnesses as their leader and the whole world is going to try to shut the door that opens before them and it can't be done. They can pronounce plagues wherever they wish. Any man who tries to stop them will be consumed from fire out of their mouths and they can't be stopped. And they will go worldwide, completely worldwide, and be a witness to the whole world that God is God. That's what it's all about. They can't be stopped until the last three days. And then God has said when they will be stopped. But that door he opens to them cannot be shut until the very end. And then the beast will think they won. They'll have a great big party. And then they'll be resurrected, and it'll be, oh. This is talking about the two witnesses in the remnant here. It's not talking about Herbert Armstrong. He's dead. That work's done. Shut. Empty. Done. Finished. His son's dead, too. And so is nearly every leading minister who was there. There may be still one or two of some of the original evangelists who are alive. I think Wayne Gold's still alive. I'm not sure. I don't keep, I don't have a newspaper anymore to keep me up with all that stuff, but uh, nearly all of them are dead. The church is dead, the ministry is dead, and not many remain. No man can shut it, for you have a little strength, and have kept my words, and have not denied my name. So, we did not keep his words the way he wanted us to, so he spewed us out. Now those who repent are going to be keeping his word and honoring his name, and he will use them to show the world that he is God. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, Edomites, who are the elites of the world's financial system today, and claim to be Jews but aren't, the Rothschilds, Red Shields of Esau. But do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. They're going to learn that. They're going to find that out. Well, they're not going to find it out from Herbert Armstrong. He's dead. 
gone. Because you have kept the word of my patience. We've been waiting patiently since 96 when I'm saying worldwide officially died was 96. Because that's when God began to reveal new knowledge in the first month that we have today. And I'm going to go through some of those things. I already am, actually. Who Philadelphia is, nobody knows hardly but you and me. About it. Few others may get it. Uh, because you've kept the word of my patience, we've had to be patient and wait, I also will keep you from the hour of temptation or the tribulation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. So these are people who are still going to be alive when the tribulation comes. Most of worldwide is either dead or fallen away. So they will not be faithfully obeying God when the tribulation starts. Only that remnant that God calls together and brings to Zion to work with his two leaders will be protected. That's all. This tribulation that is coming to try them that dwell upon the earth, it's still just ahead of us. Not very far ahead of us, but still there. Behold, I come quickly, hold that fast which you have, that no man take your crown. <coughs> it even says to them, lest you think if you're a Philadelphian you're perfect, him that overcomes will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And then he'll be part of the city of God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from heaven to rule the earth. So this is speaking of the faithful from the one before and the one after. But they are the ones that move forward to finish the work, who have the open door and will be protected from the tribulation that is coming. It's the only group that he promised that. He never promised that to Worldwide. He said, you're dead. You don't exist anymore. I'm done with you. Now, that dream that showed who the leaders would be and who the remnant would be and what their work would be was in January, first month of the Gregorian calendar in 96. And we get a double dose because in April, on Passover day, uh, I was in Chicago to give a sermon the next day, what we thought then was the first holy day, and that recognized today is no. But this came on what actually was the first holy day, even though I didn't know it and nobody else knew it. I know it now. But I was preparing the sermon, went to sleep, got drowsy, and had a vision showing Utah in the Middle East, Israel. And the whole thing was about how they were the same. The geography laid out. I, I went through that yesterday, so I won't spend a lot of time on it now. But it had the elements of uh, the Sea of Galilee and Big Bear Lake and Moab, Utah, and Moab, Jordan, and, or Jordan, whom we call Moab. Uh, but the Ammonites and, not Mennonites, <laughs> get my words mixed up, Moabites and Ammonites were involved. And I, 
it talks about the Moabites and the Ammonites, be, Ammonites being involved in the promised land at the end time and the relationship with the remnant church, which leads me to believe that a lot of Mormons are, are Ammonites and Moabites and also mixed in are a lot of Edomites from Esau. Now, you see a lot of blondes and redheads among them. Well, Esau was redheaded, and Lot was kin to Abraham. So the blonde and the red, they come by honestly, even though they're not blood Israelites. So this is where we are. But you, you have to know where the promised land is to begin to even understand that. So the map was to show me where the promised land was and where Zion was. And therefore, since... The Bible talks about Zion as a place of refuge over and over and over and over and over again. Never mentions Petra. Zion is the place of refuge. So, in the middle of that came Zion. And Petra was over there, and the Jordan Rift Valley there, and the Wasatch Range of Mountains here. It was all the same. Dead Sea, Salt Lake, uh, Little Salt Lake up by where the true Jerusalem was. And on and on it goes. So, it was a vision about the promised land. And this land of America has everything that the Bible describes as the promised land. And that country in the Middle East has nothing that it describes about the promised land. Almost nothing. It's desert, and there's some desert and wilderness here, but that's about it. But the things that it would have that you needed are not there, and they're here. This nation would not have to import anything if we didn't want to. Nothing. We have it all. It's here. We can make anything right here with what we have. He said the promised land would have everything you need. Israel has hardly anything they need, and over 60% of everything they consume is imported. For just an instance. There's lots more. Anyway, April of 96 was the first month. And that's January and April were when key elements were given that opened up an absolute plethora of understanding that we'd never had before. In Worldwide, we looked upon prophecy as something in the future. Maybe 72 and 75 would be important. And we'd all go to Petra. That's not in the Bible. There's some Protestants who thought that that might be a good place of safety. I went there and I wouldn't want to go back. Oh, please, no. It's a long camel ride. Well, I took a taxi, but uh, there's nothing there. And the Arabs and visitors uh, potty in the caves that are there. Uh, it's a desolate... Uh, don't want to go there. This Zion up here is... Pretty nice, is it not? Pretty nice. So, we learned that. But in Worldwide, we didn't. We just thought, well, prophecy's out there. We didn't know when these things would happen. And we looked for Germany to rebound and destroy us. And it's turned out since then, I think we've come to understand that Germany is not the Assyrian. They're not the army of the north. That's Russia. They fill the bill. They have everything it takes 
to come over here and destroy us with all their allies, China and Iran and whoever else, that Psalm 83 talks about, a great number of nations who would combine and come to destroy this nation. Isaiah 7 and 8 talk about it as well and say there's a conspiracy. And they say, don't fear the conspiracy. Our government says there's not one, uh, but there is. And God said there would be one. He said, don't fear it, fear me. If you fear me, I will protect you. But if you fear the conspiracy and do what they say, you'll die. Mark of the beast, you'll die. So, about all we understood about prophecy was someday we'd go to Petra. (laughs) Have to flee Jerusalem. But then it turns out, Petra is not the place of refuge God talks about. It's Zion, wherever the true Zion is. And I think I learned in April of 96 where that was. And just understanding the end-time work and how it would happen and where the true place was, was what opened up all kinds of new understanding from Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Minor Prophets and the rest of the Bible, including Luke 21 and Matthew 24 and those end-time prophecies of the New Testament. So let's, let's look at a few of those things. The Minor Prophets series, I began to understand, were a dual prophecy. They had to do first with the church. Essentially, the whole story, and I went through each book, is talking about the church first and all the things that would happen to it. And we've seen those be fulfilled about then and since then. Because what has happened to the church spiritually? As Ezekiel 5 says, and is all through the Minor Prophets, about a third of the church died of famine and pestilence. God said He would send a famine of the Word there at the end of Amos. Died of famine and pestilence of the Word. About another third were killed by the spiritual sword of the Protestants who came in and took over and destroyed the church and took them back to their dog bark. And then a third, about, have been taken back into the world and absorbed by it. And it only leaves about a 10% remnant who have not only remained to the truth, but are following it. And that's what he told us there in Joel 2. He says, I gave you the former reign. He gave us a lot of true doctrine under Herbert Armstrong. And he said, now I'm going to give you the former back because those, there are those who took it away from the church. So the stuff that Herbert Armstrong understood will be retained and retaught. And to that will be added the latter rain, which is a flood of living waters or true doctrine. Things have to be restored in order for the, full, the prophecies to be fulfilled. How can you build a temple in Jerusalem if you don't know where Jerusalem is? How can you be in the promised land if you don't know where it is? That had to be. And only a few understand 
but more will understand because God's going to do signs and wonders and cause them to see that he is working here in the promised land and he's going to bring them to build a temple and to finish the work and to show the world who God is. So the minor prophet showed that it has to be fulfilled in the church. And now that the church has been destroyed and or taken back into captivity except for a remnant, our nation is about to be taken over. A third will die of famine and pestilence. Not everybody's going to die from the COVID vaccine. A lot will, but not everybody. A third from famine and pestilence. What do you see right now? They're talking about price of food going up and there's going to be starvation because of droughts and famines and governments controlling the food. It's upon us. It's going to get worse, week by week and month by month. So those prophecies have been pretty well fulfilled in the church. Now if you go back through there from the standpoint of the nation, they're in the process of occurring. And it won't be long until they're finished. (coughs) That thing in Russia and the Ukraine and China and the South China Sea and all that is going to get worse and worse. And it's going to lead to the destruction of Babylon. That's another thing we learned. You never heard in Worldwide Church of God that this nation was the Babylon of the end time. You didn't hear that. We didn't understand it. Didn't preach it. I did a whole series of sermons here some years back showing that the only nation that fits the description of the end time Babylon is the USA. For one instance, one or two things maybe. Jeremiah 51 calls the end time Babylon the hammer of the whole earth. Now who in the world has been hammering anybody on earth that they wanted to? Hasn't been China. Hasn't been Russia. Hasn't been Germany. It's been us. We don't like somebody or who's ruling them or they want their gold or their oil or whatever they got, their poppies. We attack them. We hammer them. We kill their leaders. Qaddafi was beloved by his people. When you got married, he gave you a free house. There wasn't anything wrong in that country. But we wanted their oil and their gold, and we destroyed them and killed him. That's the hammer of the whole earth. And when it talks about the destruction of Babylon in Revelation 18, it's very clear that it's the nation that has made the whole world rich through commerce. Nobody's done that but us. We've made the Chinese rich, the Taiwanese rich, the Japanese rich, uh, Indonesians rich. You just go on and on and on. It's been the commerce with us that has caused them to prosper. And I, I mean, I could go on and on and do 20 sermons on this, just showing you scriptures. That we're the end time Babylon. And we are going to be destroyed by the beast power very shortly. We are the main obstruction to their worldwide government. So they have infiltrated our own government, are quickly destroying it, and it is working to destroy us. And Jeremiah says that Babylon would give their hand to their enemies, the leaders of it would, 
shake hands and make an agreement to destroy this country. And that's exactly what is going on today as we sit here. The people in Washington are working overtime to get rid of anybody who's conservative or who mentions the name of Christ. They want them all killed, and they're working on it. So, we're Babylon. We're also Israelites. It is Israel ruled over by a Babylonian government, and he says Babylon is going to be destroyed and not rebuilt. I think Washington, D.C. is going to become an ash pit, and perhaps New York City as well, and never be inhabited again, maybe not even during the millennium. As a reminder of what happens when we go the Babylonian satanic way. You never heard that in Worldwide. They didn't know it. Did you? Did anybody? No. I know you didn't. Now, in my vision or in my dream, I didn't see Jerusalem. It was the main element missing that has to be. Now, we know that it says in the hymn we sing from the Psalms that Jerusalem would be north of Zion. You go down to the Middle East, and they don't even know where a Zion is. I, I walked through what they call Zion. It's a cemetery. Downhill from the wall of Jerusalem, across the street, over the curb, and down a steep hill, that's what they call Zion. This, Psalms describes Zion as the joy of the whole land. It says, count the towers of Zion. you got towers over here, sticking up all over the place. It just goes on and on. There's no Zion over there. And it's certainly not north of Jerusalem. Been there, seen that. It's not there. Well, what about Jerusalem then? Why wasn't it revealed in the vision? Didn't need to be. God already had somebody else who had discovered it and he led him by the hand to find it. And nobody ever explained that to you out of Isaiah 44 and 45. You only got it here. Because it says there will be an end time Cyrus, Cyrus, if you please, uh, who is in the position of a Gentile king and acts like one. I know him well. And that to him would be given the secret treasures of God for the purpose of his people Jacob, that's us, and that they would be used to show the whole world from east to west that God is God. And it says three times there to Cyrus in Isaiah 45, you don't know me. And he doesn't. And if you talk to, let, let, listen to him talk for three, four, five hours, you will know that he does not know God at all. But God used someone in the position of a Gentile king to reveal where Jerusalem is. Now even Abraham, when he went to find it, didn't know where it was. I knew where Zion was. I came out here to be in Zion and to be in the promised land, but I didn't have a clue where Jerusalem, the city, was. Just like Abraham. God said, go find it. He says, well, okay. <laughs> I'll go find it. 
And he did. So the same thing has been happening with us that has happened throughout the Bible, and all this stuff is new. Herbert Armstrong never had a clue where Jerusalem was. He never had a clue that Christ had disfellowshipped the Jews, and he shouldn't be over there playing footsie with them in Judaism. And a lot of people in the church, once the church died and fell apart, started looking to the Jews for teaching and guidance, singing their music and all junk from Judaism. Not understanding that Christ had disfellowshipped them and said, I'll have nothing more to do with you until you perform. So we know where Jerusalem is. Try that one out in Walmart and see what kind of reaction you get. Hey, you know where Jerusalem is? Yeah, it's over in the Middle East. No, it's out here in Utah. You're crazy. Leave me alone. Another thing we learned about, you know, worldwide we were taught that Christ would return, he'd set up the millennium, then there would be the great white throne judgment. Okay, so far. But then, after that, the whole world would be burned up completely to a charred crisp. And then he would create all things new. Well, Worldwide was reading Isaiah 24 very much like Ellen G. White, the Seventh-day Adventist, did. She would pick out the verses in there that says the earth will be desolate. But she left off the words, and few men left. There's nothing in the Bible anywhere that says it's going to be burned up and nothing left. But that was what was taught in Worldwide. So I went through, uh, not too long, really, after I'd begun to learn these things in 96, because... I knew somebody, who was a relative of mine actually, who said that there'd be a lot of Protestants included in the first resurrection, in the great white throne judgment and so on, and they didn't know for sure who the 144,000 were, and Herbert Armstrong never knew. He vacillated. He'd say, well, maybe 144,000 is just the church. And then he'd say, well, maybe it's not. Maybe it's something else. He never nailed it down. Well, I did a series called... How exclusive is the church? Nine sermons. And in that is an incredible amount of understanding that we never had before. Briefly, when Christ comes and brings down the new heavens and the new earth, it's at the beginning of the millennium. And the Father is coming with him. And they will be the temple of Jerusalem. The two of them. So, the new heaven and new earth is coming at the beginning of the millennium. And that's what it says in Revelation 20. I see a new heaven and a new earth, and the bride is coming with Christ to rule on the earth. Because once they're married, they'll never leave him. They're with him wherever he goes. And we also learned in that, that... Atonement represents the marriage of the Lamb to his bride, 144,000 people. Revelation 14 makes it very clear. The 144,000, these are the first fruits. No more, no less. That's all of them. 144,000 become the bride of Christ. And once they're married, 
Atonement of 2027, it appears. They'll stay at the Father's throne, married on the Sea of Glass, Revelation says. We're going to heaven. What did Christ say? You can, where I'm going, you can't come with me now. He didn't say, you're not coming later. Yeah, we're going to heaven. You're just not going to stay very long. Get married on the sea of glass before the Father's throne. Spend a year getting acquainted with our husband, a honeymoon, as Deuteronomy 24 requires. Then we will come back with him, new heaven and new earth, to set up the millennium and rule from here. The earth is never going to be completely destroyed. And Isaiah 24 does not say so. It says few men left. About 900,000, 900 million, I'm sorry, will survive. And that's just a few out of 8 billion. And they will be the ones who are established, the millennium will be established through. With Christ ruling and us ruling with him a thousand years. So, and there's more to prove that. I mean, I'm just quickly going through some things. Who are the 144,000? That's something we've learned since worldwide. It's very clear when you put all the scriptures together. Uh, I think I have a clear idea now of where Solomon's treasures are. I think it's only a very short matter of time until that is uncovered. Well, God says at this end time, all things have to be restored. Well, you've got to start with the promised land and Zion and Jerusalem. If that isn't restored, the prophecies don't fit anywhere. And the Middle East does not fit the biblical description of the promised land at all. It goes way out in the, Caribbean, or the Mediterranean. It goes way over to Saudi Arabia. Uh, down into the Gulf of Elat. There's not room for the promised land as described in the Bible in the nation of Israel. It isn't big enough. And the geographical characteristics do not fit. Now what it does say is it goes from the Salt Sea in the north and it gives the dimensions. It puts you at about Provo. The Salt Sea and to the waters of strife in the south. And if you put the numbers together from where the true Jerusalem is, north of Cedar City, the numbers bring you to the Colorado River and the rapids, the waters of strife. It's so easy. It all fits. Let's go on down. Nobody on earth, much, is keeping the true calendar. The Jews certainly don't. They don't follow what the heavens say. They say they do, but if they don't like the day the heavens say that a holy day should be, they just simply postpone it a day or two to get the one that they like. They don't like for two Sabbaths to fall back to back like we just had. There's nothing in Scripture that says that can't happen. And it does happen. So, when it does, we simply follow what it says. He said there in Genesis 1, 14, uh, 1, 14? not sure if I got the right number. Anyway, he says that we're to use the heavenly bodies to keep track of holy days and 
months and years. That's what we're to use for a calendar. Well, they recognize that, but they don't follow it. When the heavens say it's today, if they don't like it, they simply change it. Well, God put that up there. Why not follow it? Just because you don't like it. And most people don't even understand how the heavens operate to make a calendar. We do. And most of the church of God don't know. Most of them still follow the Jews, which are completely haywire. But if you follow it and follow the heavens, it automatically declares a leap year. You don't have to do a bunch of calculating. That extra 13th month will just happen and occur, just like it did this year. And it never misses a beat. If you always use the spring equinox as the time to start counting from and finding the first new moon, that 13th month will always fall just right. It doesn't drift out. It stays, and it works. Now, it doesn't work perfectly because the heavens aren't perfect anymore. God started with a 360-day year. You had 12, 30-day months every year, and there was an eclipse every 30 days, so you could look at the heavens and know exactly when the month began. <coughs> to the second. And that's where we got our um, circle, 360 degrees, 360 days. That's where it originated. And then, because of disobedience, God changed it, probably in the days of Hezekiah. <coughs> and now we're dealing with 365 and a quarter, which makes it awkward. But we still follow the same signals that are up there and get as close as we possibly can until God changes it back. Now, another thing we learned is he's going to churn, change the heavens back to a 360-day year. Between now and the time Christ returns. Between now and the time that the tribulation starts and the two witnesses begin to preach to the world, we'll have a 360-day calendar. How do I know that? The book of Revelation says that they'll preach 1,260 days, 42 months, and um, three and a half years. Uses all three. 365 and a quarter, you can't make that work mathematically any way. With a 360-day year, it fits perfectly, those three measurements of time. So, in order to fulfill that prophecy, God's going to change the heavens. When? I don't know exactly. But I think he will probably have the witnesses announce it ahead of time, and it will become obvious that they got instruction from him and announced it, and then it happens. Now, God may not do it that way. That's just my thinking. But I know it's going to happen, because it has to to fulfill the Scriptures. It's that simple. We couldn't have known that before. Uh, we decided to start keeping Purim. It's in the book of Esther. talks all about it. It's a deliverance of Israel from Gentiles in Esther's day. And it shows what she went through and the threats to her life if she obeyed God and dealt properly with the king. And God delivered them in a mighty deliverance. It's a prophecy. 
You read all the other prophecies, and we got the, we're facing the same conditions here at the end. The Gentile beast power is going to try to kill all spiritual Israelites. And he's going to pretty much accomplish it, except for a small remnant that God is going to protect. So Esther fits today perfectly. And if it's in the Bible and it was set up to be done, why shouldn't we be doing it? Never did it in Worldwide. Never did it in the Baptist Church. Didn't do it as a Catholic. But it's biblical. We learned that. I'll tell you one that really threw people for a loop and they weren't about to accept is that Passover is the night to be much remembered. Why would you much remember a day later when you'd been walking all day and so tired you hadn't slept in more like 60-some hours, whatever it was I figured up? You weren't ready to party. You weren't ready to remember anything. You were ready to lay down, put your pack on the ground, tether your animals, and go to sleep. But Passover night is the night everything happened. Christ was taken captive. He suffered all through the next day and died. Everything that is memorable happened that day, not the next day. And even when he was crucified, the same thing. It all happened after the Passover service. All through the night he was tortured and beaten and died. So, Exodus 12 and the New Testament all fit together. You think anybody accepted that? I wrote a paper to all the ministers I could find addresses for that were from worldwide. And everyone threw it in the trash basket. But it's so clear and so obvious in Exodus 12 when you put it together. Also, the order of the Passover was wrong. And people even had questions about that at times. Well, we wash feet first. Do the ministers wash their hands before they break the bread? That probably occurred to you. I've heard it many, many, many times over the years. I said, nah, I just wiped them on my pants. But then we learned that Luke made it very, very clear, and even in John it's very clear, that the foot washing was after the bread and the wine. It's very clear. But then you had ministers that say, well, we just have to throw out Luke because he wasn't an eyewitness. It's a whole book of the Bible you throw out because Luke's not a credible witness. Give us a break. That's pure living waters poured out as latter rain. <clears throat> the fasts of the months. Never kept those in worldwide. And yet there in Zechariah is a prophecy. And he says, these fasts that you've been keeping will be turned into feasts of joy. That's a prophecy. Well, if they're going to be turned into feasts of joy instead of fasts, you had to have been fasting in order for it to turn into something else. So we started keeping the fasts of the months. And all four of them have something to do with fulfilled prophecy here at the end. We don't have time to go through all that. Woo, I'm out of time already. Uh, 
Zephaniah talks about the crash. We never fully understood what that was all about, the financial crash here at the end. And now you've got people all over the place who are saying, this economy is shot. We're so far in debt. It's all going to crash. It's going to nothing. Zephaniah said it over 2,000 years ago. That's not what we look for in worldwide. And I think we've learned that Germany is not the king of the north. I already mentioned that. Uh, another, I think, is important. Right there in Matthew it says, You shall call his name Jesus, but they shall call him Emmanuel. And then you say, well, what does that mean? Because everybody calls him Jesus. Well, you go back to Isaiah 7, there's a prophecy there of the church bringing forth the Christ child, as if in giving birth to Christ. And it says there, at the end of 65 years, Ephraim will be destroyed, or about 65 years in Hebrew, and that they will call his name Emmanuel. And the Assyrian will come into thy land, Emmanuel. And he tells us in Zechariah 2 that he's going to come and dwell with his remnant people and the two witnesses in Jerusalem and Zion. He's going to be here, and we will call him Emmanuel, because Jesus means God is salvation, and Emmanuel means God with us. So he has always been salvation, so we've used Jesus. But he's going to come dwell with us, and that is God with us, Emmanuel. So the prophecy he made right there at the beginning of Matthew is now being fulfilled. We never understood that before. Herbert Armstrong thought we were Manasseh. We always believed that. It's become very clear we're Ephraim. I covered that some yesterday. Uh, now, three major signs of the timing of all this come in a prophecy in Isaiah, one in Jeremiah, and one in Ezekiel. Isaiah talks about the 65 years where a conspiracy would be formed and would result in the destruction of this nation. And he said, don't worry about it. Follow me. Where are we? Emmanuel's land is the USA. This is where the main part of the work of God was done. Southwestern USA from Los Angeles. But he says it will be moved out of the city and into the wilderness. That's where we are. Even in Babylon. <clears throat> but not the middle of it anymore. I think that prophecy began in 1954 when the Bilderbergers had their first meeting and started a conspiracy to kill this nation. Now, there are others who conspired before that, which we know, the, uh, the Masons and various other ones. But that specific one started in 54 and ended in 2019. It said Ephraim will not even be a nation after that. Well, the end of that 65 years, and I, I could find nothing else that fit around 1954 that could possibly be used either, either direction. Well, then we got COVID, and we were no longer a nation. We're a divided people all hiding from each other behind these masks. And we've gone downhill ever since, and now everybody doesn't like everybody, and we've divided and split. And we're no longer a nation that can accomplish a thing. And we're about to be wiped out. So that prophecy fits now. 
from end of 2019, <clears throat> even before the end of it. And then you have the one in Jeremiah about the 70 years. And I always wondered where that fit. Now I know. Herbert Armstrong started a college in 1947 to train ministers to go out and build church houses, and it would be a long captivity in Babylon of 70 years. So they began to go out from ambassador, set up church houses, church congregations. Some ministers built physical houses. I did. Three of them over time. Because it was 70 years long. We were anticipating when I was eight years old and nine years old that the end was nigh. We were being taught that prophecy was already being fulfilled. No, it wasn't. Well, in a minor way. <clears throat> but now we know we're at the end of this and these things are happening as we sit here. So, that 70 years ended in uh, 2017. And the 430 years of Ezekiel laying on his side for Israel and Judah, I do believe, began with the Roanoke colony, and 430 years later was 2017. And then you have the prophecy in Amos 8, when the eclipse went all the way across the nation at noontime, and darkness prevailed, and it says there's a judgment made there, and that after that would come destruction and death. I think God's final judgment on this nation occurred in August, July or August, whenever that was, August, I think, uh, of 2017. And we've been progressing toward a lot of dead people ever since, and it's getting there. But he did not say it would be immediate. He just pronounced the judgment and said it's coming. Ezekiel made it clear that at the end of the 430 years, the destruction of Israel would happen. And he said, in a short time, it is coming, it is coming, it's a short while, it's here. I think 12 times he said it, 11 or 12. Right there in one chapter. That it won't be like the echoing again of the hills. It's not like we thought it'd be in 72 or 75 and it went on echoing through time. Well, it's been about four years since then, and that's pushing the limit of not being an echo. And it's upon us. He gave us 430 years to follow him after 430 years of captivity in Egypt. He took away 430 years from ancient Israel and gave it back to modern Israel from the time we first had our first colony here until 2017. And then he said, your destruction will come very, very soon. That's where we are. And you never heard that in Worldwide. There are plenty of other things I could go into. These are just the ones that came to mind immediately. When I realized that God has opened a river of living, true doctrine that we never had before. And it began in January and April of 1996. And it's almost done. Seventy years of worldwide, thirty years of the end time work, and it will be finished. I believe you can pretty well count on that. But we never understood it before, did we? All those prophecies that have specific beginning and ending times. And there they are right out before us.
So, what did he say there in Joel? He said that he would open these things up, that we had had the former rain, and we needed to have it enforced and re-taught. And on top of that, he would give us the latter rain. All of these things we've learned since 96 over these 25 years. And now they're coming to pass before our very eyes. The ones to the church have already occurred. The ones to the nation are happening very fast, day by day. And we will not be a nation of any kind. Much longer we'll be in captivity. And most of us will be dead. Except those who go to the wilderness to faithfully serve God, whom he says he will preserve in Jerusalem and ultimately in Zion, the place of safety. And there'll be a wall of fire around it and a cover over it of protection. And that's what will happen. So we've come a long way. Now, what did he say there in Joel 2 after that? He says there will be blessings. And he says, and afterward, I will pour out my spirit and you'll have visions and dreams and signs and wonders in the heavens that would occur. <clears throat> he didn't say how soon after. I always kind of thought, well, if we have the latter rains, blessings that come in the first month, April, then that's probably at Pentecost. And it kind of sounds like Pentecost. And Peter, on that day of Pentecost, said this is what Joel was talking about because it looked like it to him. And I think it was a fulfillment of Joel but not the final one. The final one is ahead. I think that the latter reign of doctrine began in 96. <coughs> first month. And it's continued now for years. And it will not be long later, he says, when he will pour out his spirit with all kinds of signs and wonders. Could be on Pentecost. I don't know that doesn't say. It just sounds like Pentecost and sure sounded like it to Peter. So maybe that's the case. We'll see. This Pentecost, I don't know. I've been waiting for 25 years now for that Pentecost. But when you read Joel there about calling a fast and doing all that kind of stuff, when I gave that sermon in the Church of the Great God about Joel, Peter, uh, Acts in the New Testament church, which we've heard several times, after that sermon, there was an incredible amount of emotion that was expressed. Everybody hugged everybody, and after lunch, John Reitenbaugh declared a church fast. And we thought that it was upon us. Well, the living waters were upon us, and they've still been continuing. And that fulfillment of afterward is still ahead of us when he pours out his spirit Nobody's had those visions and dreams yet. We haven't seen darkness in the day of the Lord beginning to approach. I suspect when he does it, it's going to be a quite a show, like it was with the tongues of fire and so on there in Pentecost. He will make known his spirit and his power to his people, and then the remnant are going to come because they will respond to that, just as many came and were converted after that Pentecost. So it's just ahead of us. I don't know how far. Can't be very far if this whole thing's going to wrap up by 26 and 27. And we've got to have three and a half years of tribulation. 
And we've got to build the temple before that. And it appears at this point that the temple in Jerusalem will probably be built at the same time, and it may be 70 weeks for all of it, because that's nearly a year and a half. We've got about a year to get started on this. <laughs> so some of this stuff's got to happen. The remnant has to come. And we've got to say it's time to build a temple. And a lot of people say, oh, no, it's not. Yes, it is. Let's get going. So that's enough. Uh, went over time some of what I usually do. We don't have a specific time, do we? <clears throat> Thank you for being here. I'm glad to have had some from out of town come and be with us and enjoyed visiting with you. And I hope and pray you'll have a safe trip home. I think it's been a wonderful Passover season. We've had a chance to review and remember and work on ourselves. And uh, thank you for your cooperation. Everything's been fine and wonderful and peaceful and good. And uh, it's just nice to work with people like you. It, it just is. So thank you. We'll see you either next week or at the feast or soon. <laughs>